Hello and welcome to your guide to the good stuff. I'm your host, Jim Graber. Life is too short not to enjoy every moment of it, so we're going to share with you the tips, tricks, tools, and strategies to help make your day-to-day life easier and more enjoyable. Plus, we're going to help you create those special moments, the ones that lead to lifetime memories, all without breaking the bank, because you deserve it. Hello and welcome to today's episode, Batteries Not Included. We talked in the last episode about the advantages of having solar panels. We also discussed the limitations of solar power. And one of my main reasons to go solar is to protect from power outages. And in order to do that, you're going to need a battery backup system. So today I want to discuss batteries. Again, batteries are the critical component in the renewable energy saga. As we all know, solar panels do not produce any power during the night. So the system is oversized to make enough power during the day to also meet the power needs at night. One strategy is to sell power back to the utility company with net metering, which we discussed in the last episode. And by the way, wind turbines have the same issue. The wind does not blow 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And I've studied wind turbines extensively as well. There are future plans to add some small ones to my system, which are more, much more viable. The large ones require a pretty high wind speed to start making power. They cut out at 55, and the 55 is a newer development. Some of the older ones will cut, around, cut out around 35 or 40 miles an hour. My grease-making customers tell me because they're spinning fast enough, it boils the grease out of the gearbox. But more on all of that when I have my wind turbines up and running so I can talk about what's happening with my stuff. Now, if the grid drops at night, you'll, of course, need a battery backup. And it turns out you're also going to need a battery if the grid drops during the day. All systems of power you use to supply your house require a transfer switch. Now, what this switch does is isolate your home from the power grid if the grid drops. Otherwise, there's a danger to anyone working on the power lines. Someone working on what is supposed to be a dead line that turns out is being fed by your system can electrocute that person. Plus, think about it. If you have a battery backup and it's exposed to the grid that is down without power, that grid system is going to pull all the power from your battery trying to feed the homes around you. So it won't do you much good. If you have a battery backup on your solar array, it will supply power to your house at night before pulling from the grid. And the excess power from your system produces the next day will recharge the batteries before putting any excess power back into the grid. These installations include the necessary transfer switches in your electrical panel. Now, for just having solar panels, the switch is built into the inverter. An inverter converts the DC power produced by the panels into AC power for your house. They require a signal from the grid to send power to your home, basically a switch telling them that the grid is active. If the grid goes down, the panel stops sending power. I was surprised it was set up this way. I thought they would add in the switches at the meter panel, but it is a lot of extra work and it's extra hardware. The worst case, if the grid goes down for several days, like it did for many in the winter ice storm of 2021, I thought I would have power during the day. And that's not the case. I'm still a little frustrated by the salesman who didn't explain this fact to me when we bought the panels, especially since I stated my primary goal was to avoid the negative effects of a power outage. 
I immediately asked to get batteries installed. Turns out that's not a simple process. First off, the batteries come with a controller. A battery can only hold so much charge and it can only accept a charge at a certain rate. In other words, you can't just dump a full charge into a battery at once and they can't be fully discharged. Some batteries can go as low as having 10% charge still left, while most are 20 or 30%, something I also didn't know. And the controller, it has to be compatible with the inverter from the solar panels. They have to communicate and direct the excess power to the grid, for example, when the batteries are full. My panels come from the top-rated panel manufacturer, but the same company is new to the battery-making business, and the batteries they offer are full of bugs. My installer said they would no longer install those batteries because of all the non-stop service calls related to battery issues. Now, Tesla makes a great battery for solar backup, but the waiting list is over two years and counting. They're putting all their batteries into electric vehicles. More on batteries and electric vehicles later in this episode, but right now I'm stuck. Without a signal from the grid or a battery, my system will go down. Another major issue with a battery backup system is how to size it. No one can say how long they will keep your house powered. There's just far too many variables, like what major appliances you want to run, when and how often they come on. Any electrical device will use more power to start up than it does running. It's the idea of getting it moving. They call it inrush current. Keep that in mind when we discuss the car side of this here in a minute. You can also only pull power from a battery below a certain rate, as I said earlier. Otherwise, it generates too much heat and can cause the battery to catch fire. This is somewhat of a fixed problem. In other words, there's a limit to how fast the battery can be charged and discharged. Electricity moving through a wire creates friction just like water moving through a pipe, and that friction causes heat. It also means some of the electrical power going in and out of your battery is converted to heat, and it's lost. This process works with power going into and out of the battery. Not as big of an issue with the home backup system, but it also means you'll not get battery charging down to the few minutes like it takes to fill your car gas tank in electric vehicles. Special setups are required to run your HVAC system, for example, to account for the heat generation because those require a lot of extra amperage when they first start up. My suggestion is if you buy solar panels, make a battery part of the initial installation doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a battery. Again, many are on back order, but at least they'll be part of your package. I had them install on my system with a battery in mind, so there's conduit and a junction box mounted on my pole barn awaiting to put the battery inside the barn. That's another issue. They need to be in a reasonably stable environment, not too hot, not too cold. And then batteries have a lifespan. It's really hard to pin down how long a battery for backup will last in years. Batteries are rated on the number of cycles, and that's how you'll see most warranties stated. A discharge, then a recharge of a battery is one cycle. For an electric vehicle, they have an idea of how many miles a charge will go. There's a dirty little secret in there about that mileage I'm going to share in a moment. But based on the number of cycles they expect the battery to last, they can predict the miles the car could go on one battery life. 
but each cycle deteriorates the battery. An example you might be familiar with is your cell phone. If you get a new phone, do not charge it until the battery has gone down needing charged. Doing this will keep the battery life long. If you just plug it in every night before bed, something I used to do, in a very short time it's going to require charging more and more and before long you're practically going to need it plugged into a power source all day long. Each charge is a cycle, be it a full charge or a partial charge. And with a battery backup, it's hard to say how often your battery will be cycled. Most systems can be expanded to several batteries. My plan is to start with one battery, see how long it lasts. I want to add batteries until I can get to the point of not using any grid power in the winter. Then I should survive a downed grid for days. At a minimum, again, I would have power during the day even if I didn't have it at night. One of the thoughts we had after installing solar panels was to buy an electric vehicle. Since we're making our own power, it appeared to make sense. Once the panels are paid off and we retire, we'll have no electric bill, which again is an important part of helping you retire, and no gasoline expense potentially. Really great concept, but the reality of electric vehicles is dramatically different than what we've been led to believe. Again, in a few specific cases, they might make sense. Our first thought was to look at an F-150 Lightning. They have 452 horsepower and 775 foot-pounds of torque. That's crazy torque numbers. The twin-turbo-6 EcoBoost in our current truck makes that much horsepower, but nowhere near that amount of torque. But the first issue is because of the weight of the batteries, the truck weighs about 7,000 pounds. And the extended range, trying to move all that weight, even with 775 foot-pounds of torque, only gets 320 miles. Now here's the dirty little secret I alluded to earlier. That 320 is like highway mileage is counted with gas-powered cars, but it's a little bit worse than that. Starts and stops reduce the range. Again, it takes extra power to get a motor turning and especially under a load like moving a 7,000 pound pickup truck. But to make it worse, that's also without running any accessories. Everything in an electric vehicle relies on the battery for power. That means your steering, your brakes, lights, radio, and especially the AC heating and cooling system. That range is calculated, it appears, if you left across Kansas on I-70 going in a straight line, no changing lanes so the steering stays flat, a flat road with no hills or mountains to climb, no music, no heating, no cooling. Now back in the 60s and 70s, running the air conditioner would have some effect on fuel economy. I remember my parents had a car with air conditioning and we still drove around with the windows down and my brothers and sisters were always trying to steal my air. But that's another story. But the radio or the heat running or the headlights had no effect on fuel economy. In cars today, the AC has almost no effect on fuel economy. In fact, with the windows up because of their aerodynamics, they get as good a fuel economy with the AC on as with the windows down. If you read about the owner's experiences with the Lightning, you find some got under 100 miles of range while towing a heavy trailer. This fact is not in the brochure. 
So imagine being stranded on a highway with no charge. Maybe you've got a trailer full of horses, and it's not like someone can bring you a can of electricity. It's pretty deceitful so far, I think, how they're marketing these vehicles. And if you use it like a truck, it makes absolutely no sense. Now, if you have a 30-mile commute to work and you like to drive a truck, maybe this thing makes sense for you. So we looked at several cars, but they were expensive and all around the same range. We had a daughter living in Golden, Colorado at the time, and it's an easy drive of 620 miles for us. The speed limit on I-70 is 75, and the trip is just under 9 hours. But in an electric vehicle with a potential 300-mile range, we'd have to stop to charge. And I say 300 because I'm going to listen to the radio and probably have the AC on. The BMW i4, the one we looked at, takes 30 minutes with a fast charger to get 80% charge. We assume those are everywhere for this example, but its range is only estimated to be 283 miles. With accessories on, I'd expect it to be closer to 250 miles before you have to stop and it runs out of battery. So stop after 250 miles, then gain 80% more charge or 200 more miles after 30 minutes. Now you've made 450 miles. Stop again for 30 minutes to get the final 200 you need, and you're going to need another charge when you get there. A full charge can take 6 to 8 hours, so basically you add a minimum of 2 hours to a normally 9-hour trip, and that's if no one else is using the charger when you get to it. Again, that assumes you can find a fast charger. A relative of ours came to see us one year driving from California in a new Tesla S. The trip was in late December and took an extra day than planned to get here due to the power consumption to run the heater. It was already a full day longer than in a gas-powered car. The time to charge is the number one issue with an electric vehicle, and the time issue is a fixed physics issue. You can't just dump an entire charge all at once. Now, more batteries can extend the range, but the weight penalty works to reduce that range. There's a balance, which explains why all the makers of EVs have similar ranges. Go look them up. The physics of the battery and the motor control the parameters. It takes a specific amount of energy to move a specific mass. That's physics. You're not going to change it. We even considered a hybrid. One company shows a couple in their hybrid passing gas station after gas station while the husband asks, do we need to? And she goes, no. It's a nice marketing idea, but the reality is nowhere close to that. First off, due to space and weight, the battery is only big enough to have a range of 30 miles. I don't know how many gas stations you're going to be passing with only a range of 30 miles. If you look Almost every hybrid has a similar range. Again, physics comes to work here controlling the results. More weight, less range. The added weight of the battery reduced the fuel economy of the gas engine. So if you drive 30 to 50 miles a day, hey, might be good for you. You can only run on the battery. Several hybrids claim an EPA estimate of 50 miles per gallon, but when you look at the real-world numbers, the number's closer to mid-30s in fuel economy. That's from thousands of reports from actual owners. The first 30 miles or so uses no gas, so the fuel economy is bumped up, but on long trips it has a diminishing effect. The farther you drive on gas, the less amount that 30 miles helps you.
Now, while 36 miles per gallon is great, it's a far cry from 53 and 54 like some cars I've seen being rated, and those very same cars' real life was closer to 36. Plus, the car costs six dollars to $8,000 more than the standard model, and that's after the federal rebates. So just like the peddlers of solar panels, I wish there was honesty in selling them. For some people, these cars are a great option. It would be extraordinary, I think, to justify the extra cost, but you'd have to have a great situation. You can do the math, but for an extra 8000 I can buy gas and go 75,000 miles for the same money. Here are a few more thoughts about the electric vehicle craze. The main reason you need to be aware of these things is because the UN has bullied all automakers to agree to stop selling gas-powered cars by 2025. In fact, California made it law. Does not mean they're going to be electric, but that's the intent of the UN. Now just imagine for a moment what it'll look like. California has 34 million registered vehicles. Next time you go to get gas, especially at peak times in the morning, over lunch, or on your commute home, how many cars do you see fueling up? Now keep in mind, gas-powered cars have more range than EVs, so they fill up less than an EV needs charging. So if it's just EVs, there'll be more of them at that gas station. Now imagine instead of five minutes to fuel up, they all need 30 minutes. Now even if you can claim half of them are being charged at home, how much of a mess is it still going to get to have your car charged at a, I guess, gas or battery charging station? You take a trip and stop to charge only to find your number 10 in line, five hours before you can grab a 30-minute charge. I can hear the retort right now, switch to mass transit, stop driving. That could work in a big city, but even then, they do not have an overabundance of capacity, and there is no such infrastructure across most of the nation, and it's not going to be built in the next 10 years to meet the UN deadline. I could go on and on. You get the point. Two larger issues loom, though. First is there's not enough known resources to produce the batteries needed, not even considering what happens when batteries are replacing just to put one car out for every battery-powered car. And finally, we simply do not produce enough electric electricity to power all the gas-powered cars we have today with electricity. There are issues now keeping up with powering homes and big businesses, let alone adding vehicles. And as we are forced into renewable sources instead of reliable power plants and more and more electric cars, we're going to have more issues with the grid. I'm not sure we have the manufacturing capability to produce the number of solar panels and wind turbines to meet the demand in the next 10 years. Plus then, what about the batteries needed to support the system when it's night and the wind's not blowing? That's on top of the batteries for all the cars. Maybe some new non-heavy metal, non-acid battery will develop. But again, even then, the volume to produce and fill up the pipeline is mind-boggling. My personal belief is hydrogen's going to end up being the real alternative to power our cars. But that's another topic, and it will not be before the electric cars cause enough mess to expose their shortfalls. I encourage you to look into solar for home electric production, not just for the peace of mind of avoiding power outages and the stable utility price that you're going to pay, but the potential blackouts and brownouts is only increasing. 
Home solar can not only protect you from those events, but again, it's going to reduce the load on the grid and maybe, just maybe, give us a fighting chance. We're always interested to hear what you think. Please go to our website, yourguidetothegoodstuff.com, and leave us feedback. That's Y-O-U-R, guidetothegoodstuff.com. You can also reach out at our email, yourguidetothegoodstuff at gmail.com. New episodes are released every Monday and can be found wherever you get your podcast. As an added benefit, if you sign up for our email, you will receive a synopsis of what Monday's episode is about on the Sunday before. Plus, you'll get any links we share and behind-the-scenes photos delivered to your email on the Monday after the episode is released. In the meantime, have a fantastic week, and as my friend would always say, Arrivederci.